0: Welcome to Pedagog, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, Jacob D. Richter talks about participatory counter-narratives, multimodality in teaching composition, digital tools and technologies, collaborative learning, and being a visiting assistant professor. Dr. Jacob D. Richter is a visiting assistant professor of technical communication at Georgia Institute of Technology. His research on composition pedagogy writing and networked environments digital rhetoric and social media's utility for education has appeared in college composition and communication computers and composition convergence prompt and exchanges he teaches first-year composition technical communication business communication and other upper division writing courses jacob thanks so much for joining us in your college composition and communication article participatory counter narratives geocomposition public memory and the sounding of hybrid play space. You write about public memory and social justice, and you introduce, quote, participatory counter-narratives, end quote. Do you mind defining participatory counter-narratives and how this might help teachers reconceive teaching and research?
1: Yeah, participatory counter-narratives are kind of a mouthful, aren't they? Uh, but yeah, so, so this project arose in a graduate course at Clemson University, where I did my PhD, Um, It was uh, uh, Jordan Frist's um, mobile and locative media course. And I, as a compositionist through and through, um, with a background in rhetoric and composition, very much, um, you know, tried to find parallels between mobile and locative media and my interest in multimodal composition, and particularly in um, social justice and opportunities for um, thinking about uh, diversity and equity and inclusion in my classes. So that's kind of where the project originally came from, of course, um, you know, taking participatory from like a Henry Jenkins, um, like Sarah Royo writes about participatory composition really um, eloquently. But anyways, yeah, so the idea um, of participatory counter narratives uh, arose from my thinking really about how to help students in composition courses to intervene, like I really like that word intervene, Um, how to intervene in their local public memory, um, in their local communities with the help of digital tools, um, in in, in my case, uh, a, a collaboratively produced GIS audio tour. Um, but anyway, so just as a kind of like a you know brief definition, participatory counter narratives um, ask students to take an active role in using particip- uh, participatory media, such as uh, like I use Audacity and then the free GIS audio tour uh, mapping platform GeoTourist, um, in an attempt to articulate a counter narrative that's aligned with social justice or equity in some way, um, oftentimes concerning a place um, and pr- particularly places that will commonly get ignored in dominant tellings about um, about a, an area or a community. So anyways, um, participatory counter narratives, I would uh, slightly more complexly um, define them as meaningful interventions in the places that shape our communities, our histories and our pedagogies. But really, um, it's really like looking at how rhetoric and geography and public memory in place can all be approached in an, interve- uh, an interventionist way within the confines of a first year composition course. So they really understand um, public memory and kind of in a local place, a local context as um, constructed, produced and enacted uh, very actively but also passively through the stories that we tell and also thinks about how um, that sort of public memory can be strategically reconceived through maps or through uh, mapping of university campuses in particular within first year composition courses. So anyways, they um, intervene in local public memory to articulate counter narratives of a place or of a community, um, ultimately using participatory digital um, tools. So anyways, in my classes uh, in first year composition, I asked students to use um, say like Audacity and GeoTourist to intervene in dominant local stories, which for me at Clemson University at the time doing my PhD was mostly about um, athletics, mostly about football, um, about like athletic success. And generally, um, otherwise about historical white men, and instead we focused on articulating a counter narrative that uh, foregrounded either Clemson's history with race as uh, you know in, an institution that was really late to um, admit their first black student as well as their first um, female student. Um, so we talked about really race and gender justice and connected them to local places and monuments on campus, like say particular buildings like um, Old Main or Tillman Hall on Clemson's campus, as well as a local uh, Confederate monument maybe. Three or four miles from campus, uh, but basically, I had students write out a counter narrative. I had them record it for an episode of a um, audio tour, and then we spliced those uh, audio tour episodes together into the actual audio tour in the Geotourist application that people can access on their smartphones. And basically, attached each student-produced episode of um, the audio tour to a ge- geographical place around campus that people could walk to or, you know, uh, uh, go to um, physically within the world and then hear a counter narrative
0: in that article you talk about the importance of multimodality and how sound audio radio and podcast quote convey stories about particular people places and events end quote can you talk more about the affordances of these mediums and their value in composition classes in your article you talk about an audio tour project
1: yeah yeah so really like i guess like unsurprisingly i think i find tremendous potential um and really excitement and enthusiasm for multimodality in composition um, and especially for sound based compositions like podcasts or in my case, audio tours. Um, so really my interest in these topics is primarily concerned with opportunities for creation of uh, like what I would describe as public humanities projects in composition, um, especially those that help students to take a more active role, you might say, in engaging um, in public memory in their local communities. So um, like very much, um, generally speaking, very positive responses from students. They're interesting, fun projects where students actually do things in the world. And so I think that's, uh, you know, something that composition as a discipline has always been pretty good about, uh, you know, foregrounding and prioritizing. And I think that's something that I definitely have learned from while also incorporating sound in multimedia. Um, so um, I very much view multimodality really in public humanities projects, like, like the one that I wrote about in SEAS. Um, um, I really view them as opportunities to do something in composition courses. I really view them as actions and as verbs, you might say. Um, but, so anyways, like what like, I suppose like one kind of illustrative uh, thing that I like to talk about with my students is I like to talk about interventions as being really crucial, uh, both through uh, multimodal uh, participatory projects that engage public memory, but then also to the larger work of writing and rhetoric that's actually engaged with the world, that's socially engaged. Generally speaking, with uh, multimodal projects, my my goal isn't to have students make an audio tour or even make a documentary film or whatever we're doing. Uh, it's to have them intervene in their community's stories or in public consciousness, you might say, through a GIS audio tour or through a documentary or something of the like. Um, so really, like, like, like one thing that I think my PhD program uh, at Clemson University, the Rhetorics, Communication and Information Design or the RCID program, uh, one thing that program really stressed to me uh, throughout and across course work in the dissertation process is thinking not only in terms of process and product when it comes to multimodal projects, but also um, thinking in terms of possibility. And for me, that's always been um, civically engaged possibilities for multimodality, like the uh, participatory counter-narratives GIS audio tour that uh, asks students to articulate counter-narratives for public consumption through civic rhetorical actions. Um, So thinking about like what multimodality can do and how it can intervene is I think really uh, crucial for multimodal composition. And certainly I think like gets great responses from students. Um, Some of my best interactions with students have been, um, when, when we're thinking about how to actually communicate to a public audience, and especially through media that's probably relatively unfamiliar to them. Like I have some students who have made um, like, like YouTube videos in the past, which of course is not entirely the same as making an audio tour episode, but there's lots, um, l- lots of like cross-pollination opportunity that can happen there. But generally speaking, students are brand new. They're learning audacity for the first time. They're learning, you know, perhaps the Adobe Creative Cloud if they're using that um, technology for the first time. Uh, but really, it's uh, it's an opportunity for experimentation and innovation and then uh, intervention. But yeah, in terms of uh, sound-based media, like say audio tours or podcasts, I think really uh, the humanity is something that uh, not all media, like say writing, um, oftentimes uh, you might say foregrounds or oftentimes prioritizes. It's helpful to hear a person speak. It's helpful to hear a human speak a lot of the time. Um, like there's always a person behind an idea um, that an audio tour or a podcast could um, could, ar- could be articulating, and uh, so anyways, I see that as a real opportunity. Of course, reach is also a major opportunity. Being able to actually reach um, public audiences is a you know something that I think sound-based media is is pretty uniquely equipped to do, or you know has a lot of um, ability to do, and I find that really exciting as well.
0: Quick follow-up question, Jacob: How has Embracing multimodality and digital tools and technologies shifted your pacing in a class like first-year writing. I'm thinking about the time it takes to experiment with and and learn new technologies, for example, and how that might change the quantity of larger assignments you give to students. Learning Audacity or Pro Tools and understanding how audio recording and editing works is, is different than opening a Word doc and typing. In what ways has this shaped your curriculum and sequencing of assignments?
1: Yeah, yeah, most definitely. It should be scaffolded in very carefully, I would say, very uh, slowly. Um, I always like to, um, I, I, like, like generally speaking, I teach multimodal, um, very formal multimodal um, communication projects as the last project within a given first year composition um, course. Generally speaking, it's, you know, say three out of three projects or, you know, um, I think four projects in one semester is ambitious. I've tried that in the past and uh, everything gets a bit rushed. But yeah, something like say teaching technology is something that theoretically I would like to avoid. But if you're going to work with multimodality, oftentimes you have to do that. I always uh, try and take a uh, relatively informal and you might say experimentation based approach. Like I, I haven't done this with um, uh, like, like, like podcasts or sound or audio tours yet. But, but in the past, I've taught um, students how to make short documentary films. And one of the ways that I like to do that is to take videos of my cat, Henry, and upload those to our Canvas page, and I have students download the short videos, and then I have them go into Premiere Pro or Filmer, whatever you know, technology we're using, whatever software we're using, and I have them create um, a short video called A Day in the Life of Henry, and they record voiceovers, they uh, you know arrange the clips in a unique or unconventional way, they you know add in credits, they add in um, subtitles and alt text and all of that good stuff. That, uh, that basically teaches them how to create a um, film production um, in the software while also learning how to tell a story and doing so in a way that's, you know, halfway enjoyable. And uh, and then I, you see the repository of Day in the Life of Henry videos that I have at this point. Um, I have many of them that students have made over the, over the last couple of years. But yeah, I would say like it's, uh, multimodality has to be scaffolded in and really it has to be a uh, continual conversation that I think um, instructors revisit with their students over time and thinking about, you know, affordances, thinking about constraints and thinking about people, how people actually interact with different media.
0: One of your other pedagogical values is collaborative learning, social learning. Can you talk about how you foster collaboration or the ways in which you curate a classroom committed to collaboration? What does this look like in, in practice via activities, assignments, assessments, and what tools and technologies help you center collaborative learning?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. I would say, like, I I love um, social and collaborative learning. I like to think really, uh, like, perhaps one of the really important elements of my teaching um, involves what I I suppose what I would call helping students to form horizontal bonds. And when I say horizontal bonds, I just mean um, student-to-student relationships that perhaps are nurtured by a course design, but where the um, instructor isn't necessarily directly present. So uh, supporting and nurturing those horizontal bonds where students are learning from and with one another is I think something that a, you know, a composition in a writing course could be pretty uniquely uh, equipped to do. And I think that's a form of learning that you know students will potentially take with them throughout their entire writing lives, throughout their entire learning lives. Um, but yeah, um, I would say social and collaborative learning are also central to what I actually do in my classes, especially in first year writing. Um, my students collaborate all the time. They, uh, I have them write and um, collaborate to write pretend onion articles, uh, articles for the onion, the satirical publication, um, to practice diction, to practice um, writing a, with a certain tone. Um, I have students collaborate to write uh, mock Kickstarter pages to practice tailoring a message for a particular audience. Um, and then students also collaborate, like I have them make uh, Shark Tank presentations to um, actually learn about and then enact the rhetorical situation um, in a collaborative and social environment where they're you know actually like pitching a product to uh, particular judges and tailoring a message for an audience. And that works best collaboratively um, and also helps them to think about how collaborative writing actually works in the world, in the workplace. Um, because I think that's, uh, you know, collaborative writing is something that perhaps, um, you know, uh, like at least I don't dedicate enough time to sometimes. And I've very much made, the, uh, af- made an effort over the past couple of years to incorporate uh, collaborative writing pretty explicitly into my courses. Um, but anyways, like I think like, like my research and especially my dissertation, are also about collaborative social learning very explicitly. I use um, social media tools like Slack and Discord in my classes to support um, social learning. Um, I primarily use Slack in my dissertation, um, data in my dissertation research um, within a course to uh, form a digital learning community that um, anyways, ends up supporting students um, in terms of practicing and learning about digital literacy, um, forming learning ecologies, um, forming uh, distributed expertise within the uh, Slack learning community. Um, so, anyways, uh, I guess like I have students participate on Slack each week on their own terms with a unique participatory contribution that really is meant to leverage the, the, basically the practices and logics of social media for learning. Um, so, in my dissertation, I uh, conducted a qualitative case study that found um, social media pedagogies um, that that use uh, technologies like Slack can support learning ecology formation and in, and in, in, um, distributed expertise both of which I'm uh, writing about in future projects and showcase, I think, some of what collaborative social learning initiatives, especially using social media, um, can actually do. So um, yeah, I think that digital technologies and participatory media can help to support social social relationships between students that can be leveraged for learning. And I find that a really um, exciting and uh, a really fun possibility for composition studies.
0: Jacob, you are a visiting assistant professor at Georgia Tech. I was hoping to give you some space to talk more about your move from grad school to being a visiting assistant professor. Maybe you could help demystify that shift and position for us and share what your experiences have been like.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would say, uh, like, I obviously can't speak for every visiting assistant professor out there. And, uh, you know, my experience as as a white guy will be Uh, very different, I think, from other people's experience sometimes. And obviously, like even the term uh, visiting assistant professor can be pretty broad, and your your job conditions can vary widely. Um, But I guess like uh, at Georgia Tech, um, I'm a visiting assistant professor. I've um, enjoyed my time tremendously. We obviously have great students here at Tech, so that's really um, helpful. And, uh, you know, is really kind of the foundation of what I've enjoyed as a visiting assistant professor. Um, But really, like being a VAP, I think, for people in composition and even uh, say, like postdoc um, positions, which um, are similar to being a VAP in some ways, I think. Um, I think it can be a really good opportunity for some people to consider, you know, if they don't immediately land really the perfect long-term job that they want. You know, for instance, I'm on a, on a like one or two-year contract, um, but lots of VAP positions I think are, you know, pretty temporary. Um, really the main advantage for me, and I'm imagining this is helpful for a lot of others, is that um, visiting roles give you more time to be on the job market. So you can perhaps find the right job, not just the available job, and uh, you know that's easier to um, believe in when you're, you know, like me, and you end up loving your position. Um, but I think that having a little bit more time to find the right fit, to find the right geographical location, to find the right teaching load or research expectation, that sort of fit, can be really important. And having some extra time to uh, be on the job market to really hone your, you know, job talk, hone your campus visit skills, hone your Zoom interview skills can be really helpful and a visiting role can enable that. Um, So something that I like about being a visiting assistant professor uh, is having the opportunity to teach courses that are new to me at a new institution. And like I have a chance at Georgia Tech to teach upper division um, technical writing courses which are relatively new to me. Um, So I'm teaching right now courses on social media, on um, uh, a course called the rhetoric of technical narratives. I'm teaching a course called communication and culture over the summer, which I'm really excited about. And these are courses that are, you know, upper division courses that allow me to uh, experiment with, uh, you know, new course designs, brand new projects. I think lots of VAP positions kind of give you that um, advantage or that affordance. But really, I think they're all about testing the waters of being a faculty member. Um, a major advantage maybe perhaps for many could be uh, time to focus on research. I don't know what, um, like a standard teaching load really is for every VAP out there, but like right now I teach a two-two, and it gives me a ton of time to focus on research um, and also on the job market to find a more permanent job, which of course, like being on the job market, a major draw on your time. Um, I, I would say, like one other advantage is mentorship and professional assistance. Uh, very much something that happens at Georgia Tech. Lots of great, um, you know, scholars here. Um, you know, tenure track people who are helping me, even though they don't have to necessarily. Um, so the mentorship um, and professional development opportunities are crucial. Um, and really, I think that really like VAP positions give you a chance to grow and perhaps expand as a scholar. Um, so I've enjoyed my time and I would, I would recommend it to, to many.
0: This is my last question and it's a follow-up. What have been some challenges in being a visiting assistant professor? I'm curious about the transient nature of this position, being somewhere for one or two years, moving there, being on the market again, the uncertainty and possible implications, like how this might impact interactions with colleagues and and even investment in the program and so on.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I guess the short answer is that it's not great. You know, uh, things can get a bit murky, you know, like, especially if you have a family, if you're moving a family for a one or two year role, you know, um, in some cases, I think people will, you know, have um, like kind of like sign a contract for one year with an option for a second year, uh, but that's not guaranteed. You know that's something that I think like many you know visiting professors visiting faculty have to navigate and have to frankly you know you have to make your life conform to you know institutional needs and budgets and policies um, that are almost entirely out of your control you know I'd imagine that many people are renewed or not renewed alternatively um, through no fault of their own through no cause of their own and that can be you know uh, obviously a, a situation that is not ideal for many people Um, I think, like, so long as you go into a contract for a visiting role with clear expectations and, frankly, get a lot of things in writing um, in your contract, that could be pretty crucial because, uh, you know, I've heard horror stories of people being promised a certain course load and then, you know, teaching stuff they didn't necessarily want to teach um, and also having, you know, uh, differences in expectations versus reality from what they expected. Um, But it can be really tough. Luckily for me, I only moved about two hours um, two hours west from Clemson, South Carolina to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, but it can be a real strain on your family. It can be a real strain on your, you know, if you have a partner, if you are um, like have a family, that sort of thing.
0: Thanks, Jacob. And thank you, pedagogue listeners and followers. Until next time.